What? You too? I thought I was the only one. Now, it is around this expression that C.S. Lewis says friendships begin. When two or more companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or taste which others do not share, and until this moment, each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. This is how C.S. Lewis says friendships get going, they begin, is when you're living life and you have interest and you have insights or you even have burdens, you have things that you like and, and, and they're your own little treasure, your own little delight. And then you begin to meet other people who have the same delights, who have the same insight, interest. And you begin to talk about these things and, and, and then you realize, oh, you too? I thought I was the only one. And friendships take off and we develop these kind of friendships every day on, in varying degrees. And the deeper love that we have for certain things usually um, determines the depth of the friendships we form, whether it's travel or food or education, parenting philosophies, theology that we embrace, fitness, sports, politics, all of these things that, that, that we say, this is mine. I love this, I like this, I know this, I experience this. this, this is my treasure, this is my insight, this is a part of me. And then we meet others and we realize, no, them too, they get it too. And bonds begin to form and it's one of the reasons why our deepest friendships should be in the church among followers of Christ because this is an extremely unique bond that we have. We, in, in many ways, are a minority in the world that gather around the gospel, that seek to follow Christ, that struggle with sin, that are encouraged by grace and mercy, that are looking to, to the rule and reign of Christ forever, and we have this unique experience, and we gather with other Christians, and we say, what? You too. I thought I was the only, only one who felt that way, who, who struggled that way, who believed those things, who hoped in those things. I, I sometimes feel like I'm the only one and that, that now I have a friend. Well, today in our passage, God invites us to come to the garden and make friends with Jesus. Because so often it's in suffering and pain and difficulty that we look around and we say, I'm the only one. I'm the only one who's endured this. I'm the only one who's felt this way. I'm the only one who's suffered this way. And yet in the garden today, we say, no, I'm not the only one. And there is one there who has suffered and felt pain beyond what we could ever feel. And we are to come to the garden of Gethsemane and meet with Jesus and say, you too, my friend, you too. I thought I was the only one. 
As we see him in pain and suffering, we are to say, you too. As we have moved to this section of scripture, we have seen Jesus enter Jerusalem. We have seen him celebrate the Passover with his disciples in the upper room. In the upper room, as the disciples were were sitting around eating and talking, many of them began to debate about who was the greatest. And and we want to sit next to you on the right, Jesus, when you come and rule and reign. We want to be great. And in those moments, Jesus got up and John tells us, began to wash their feet. Scrub the scum off the bottom of their feet like a slave. And he says, this is what greatness looks like. After that, he begins to head out with his disciples, and along the way, he begins to teach them about the Spirit, about prayer, and about his role as one who intercedes on their behalf. He begins to teach them how the Spirit is going to come, and he's going to comfort them. And finally, they make their way into the Garden of Gethsemane. And it is no mistake in these moments where our friendship is to form with Jesus that weaving in and out and immersed and intertwined in this interaction is still the issue of betrayal. Isn't that fascinating? Where we form our friendship with Jesus, we are reminded of betrayal. And here in verse 27, Jesus says to them as they make their way to the garden, he says, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter, be scattered. Now we so often come to the story and we emphasize Judas as the betrayer. We've already heard he's going to be the one who's going to turn him in. He's going to, he's going to be the one to betray them betray Jesus. And yet here he comes back and says, no, 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 you all will betray me. Because we're we're moving to a point, and he says here, where the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. It's a prophecy from Zephaniah. And he says, you're about to see this happen. Shepherd, the king, the ruler, the Messiah. This is the way Israel referred to their coming Christ. He will be struck And those he came to save, the sheep, his flock, will run away. He says, you're about to see that, and all of you are going to run away. Judas will turn me in, but you will all run away. But then, in this verse 28, is something we never get when we see Jesus telling of his crucifixion. He always says this, I will be raised when I am raised. Here he says, but after I am raised... I will go before you to Galilee. I will meet you again back home. And Galilee will gather again after the resurrection. But you're going to betray me. It's going to be some dark days ahead. And Peter, we know, verse 29 said, even though they all fall away, I will not. Think about the pride and arrogance in Peter. To look Jesus in the eyes and say, you're wrong. Not me. I know you didn't mean to say all. And you meant some. Maybe one, two, three, but not me. I will, I will, if, if, if I have to die, I will not betray you. 
And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, before money, before morning comes, before the sun rises, you will deny me three times. And Peter, emphatically, the text says, no, stop it, Jesus. Don't talk like that. If I must die with you, you, you have called us to take up our cross and follow you, and I'm going to do it. I will not de- deny you. But notice this. Just like we like to focus on Judas, and they all said the same thing. We give Peter a hard time. Peter just rallied the troops. Not me. And then Andrew said, and not me. And then it just spread throughout the room. John, Matthew, not me. Philip, not me. I won't do it. No, I will not deny you. And and imagine the scene there. They're they're headed into the garden. They're headed out. And now they have a, it seems as though they have, Jesus has an army of loyal followers. We're headed to the cross with you, Jesus. And then we see a different scene in the garden. Notice verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And this means oil press. We think about the Mount of Olives. This is, this is where the olives were pressed and it became a place that symbolized stress and burden. We even talk about our Gethsemane as our places of anxiety. And Jesus is walking into this garden and he says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And then he took with him Peter, James, and John. Now at that moment, We are to think about the transfiguration. Remember, he took them up on the mountain. He said, I'm going to show you my glory. And his glory was unveiled before them in brilliance and power to see he is the ultimate authority. He is the one who has all power, rule, the only one who deserves to reign in the world. They have seen it with their eyes. Peter fell down and said, let's stay here. Let's build houses of worship on this mountain. They have seen his glory. And so maybe in their minds, they say, okay, another moment of transfiguration. He's going to show us again his power and his glory. But notice the words he became greatly distressed and troubled. Oh, that's a twist. That's a turn. That's not what's supposed to happen with these three men, his closest disciples. He becomes greatly distressed and troubled. The word means, the words here mean intense horror, despair, and pain. The, the description here is he becomes suffocated under anxiety, stress, almost to a point where he is being tortured inside, distressed and troubled. And he turns to them and says, my soul is very sorrowful. I am drowning in sorrow. I can't breathe under the despair. Notice, even to death, he says, 
The pain of this moment is killing me. I don't know if physically I'm going to make it. He turns to his brothers, Peter, James, and John, the disciples. And he says, you remain here and watch. Now we know the other writers say he didn't go very far from them. He didn't go into some hiding place. And so what is he doing? Remain here and watch. Maybe watch for the betrayer and the authorities that are coming to arrest him. Or maybe sit here and watch what you're about to see as I pray. Maybe watch this agony because you need to see it. Watch. Jesus is brought low with emotional pain that nearly kills him. He's not a robot. He's not a comic book hero. 100% God, but he is also 100% man. And we've all felt that panic and agony and anxiety and stress that takes our breath away. I don't know if I can breathe. This is too much for me. Jesus fills it in these moments to an infinite degree. It's going to kill me. He turns to the disciples and says, it's going to kill me. And Luke tells us in these moments of prayer, the emotional stress became so much for his body that he began to sweat blood. His capillaries filled with blood on his skin and began to burst because of the emotional stress. Because of the pain inside him. And why is this? Well, Jesus is terrorized by hell. Where is he going? He is going to the cross where he will bear God's wrath for our sin. And it is real. And he sees what's before him in eternal torment. He understands what it will mean for him to be forsaken by the Father. And the sorrow in his gut is too much for him to bear in this moment physically. So he falls to the ground. Because he understands the realities of hell. God's infinite judgment, just judgment on sin that will be unleashed upon him. Jesus is scared of hell. And I wonder if you are today. I wonder if you think about God's just judgment on your sin, wrath and hell, if there's any kind of dread like this in your soul. Maybe not to the level of the Savior because he gets it perfectly and he understands it perfectly, but as you think about God's wrath for your sin personally, is there any sorrow in your gut? Any fear in your mind, in your heart? That would bring you to your knees, to repentance today. And what about for others that you know who are apart from Christ? Jesus has borne your wrath for you, but what about them? They are going to bear God's wrath for their sin. Is there any fear in your gut? Jesus is not ashamed to be scared of hell that is before him. The terror of hell that is before him. He's not ashamed of that. 
And in these moments, you say, oh, he's going to be raised from the dead. He's ruling and reigning right now. But in this moment, he expresses to us, this is no trivial matter. This is no fairy tale. He will endure infinite judgment. But we also see, and I think it's important for us to realize, the Savior turns to these men. Men like you and, you and I. Fleshly folks, created in the image of God, sinners, Peter, James, and John, and he looks at them and says, I don't know if I'm going to make it. This is their teacher, this is their leader, this is the Messiah, and he looks to these men and says, this is, this is too much. I don't know if I can breathe, this is going to kill me physically. These men who have seen his glory transfigured before them and here they see his deepest pain. Jesus here gives us the freedom to be able to look to others and say, this hurts. In your sorrow and pain, some of you are trying to bear it alone. You can't. If Jesus can look at others and say, this hurts, this is painful, you can too. Actually, you're supposed to. Jesus gives you a pattern for suffering here. And more than that, he gives you a pattern in prayer because he turns to the Father and says it hurts. It's too painful. Notice verse 35, going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed. Here, he he stumbles to the ground. The weight, the, the, the pain... The torture in his soul in these moments brings him to his knees. And what does he do? He prays. And notice what he says. If it were possible, he prays that the hour might pass from him. This moment might pass for him. The hour where he will endure God's judgment and wrath for sin. Jesus is asking the Father, can this pass from me? Let's... Stop there and stay there for just a moment. So often we think it's a fairy tale. It's nice and pretty. The Savior stumbling and falling from emotional pain and saying, do I have to do this? That's what he says. Do I have to do it? Is there another way? He's not marching to Golgotha with a smile on his face. Immense pain to the Father. Do I have to do this? But notice that it is surrendered the whole way to the Father's will. This hour is the Father's will. And so he says, verse 36, he says, Abba, Father. Now, this is not a sweet baby coo. Sort of gurgling, mama, dada. It's not what's going on here. This is a son screaming to his dad, rescue me, save me. That is the Abba cry to a son, to the father. No, no, dad, come help me, come save me. Come rescue me. There's got to be another way. That is Jesus, by the way. Jesus does that as the son 
This, this is the kind of scream, and if, if you've ever been in those moments around the emergency room, as a pastor, I've been in those moments where families have received the worst possible news they could ever imagine. Mother, father, falling on their knees, screaming to God, why? Intense agony, that is Jesus here. Not me, please save me. But notice what he says. All things are possible for you. He's not in rebellion here. Admitting this is not rebellious for Jesus. Even the testing is not rebellion. Because what does he say? You're in absolute control, Father. But my desire is that you would rescue me. My desire is that there would be another way. And he says, remove this cup, the cup of wrath that he will drink down. Remove it. I don't want to drink it. But then notice where we end. Yet not what I will, but what you will. But, but if we camp out here for a moment, the Bible tells us that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. This was God's eternal plan that Jesus would die for our sins. And here in this moment in the garden, it's on thin ice. It seems as though the sun might back out. Eternity is at stake in these moments with Jesus' desires. He doesn't desire this. He doesn't desire torment. Jesus doesn't say, I can't wait to be forsaken by the Father. It's not something that he desires. It's not something that he wants. He loves the Father. He loves the Spirit. He doesn't want to be forsaken on the cross. He's not longing for it. He's admitting his desire, but surrendering it to the plan of God. And that's how we must pray ourselves. This is my desire, but your will be done. It's, it's, it's both and. It's not either or. This is my desire, but your will be done. Jesus desires the Father's will, and he surrenders his desire to let the cup pass to the Father's will. And so surrendering to God doesn't mean you hide your desires. Think about that. If Jesus just mechanically moves through this moment like some sort of actor, like he's in a drama, he just sort of goes through the motions, then this is a joke. This isn't real. If he just sort of moves through it. If, if the Garden of Gethsemane is not in your Bible, then, then we should have no reason to believe that there was any sort of emotion or sorrow that was genuine and authentic with the Savior. No, God gives us a window into his emotions to remind us this is real. And his desires are real here. And if it's not a fight of the will, it's not genuine submission, right? Even in your own life, if there's not some tension there, God's gonna, God's gonna bring about some tension in your life so you have to actually submit your desires to his. And that's what's going on with Jesus here. He has to submit to the Father's desire. 
And it's important that we acknowledge our desires. And by the way, in your prayer life, the more you offer up your desires to God, he's not going to be shocked by them. Actually, your prayer life will take off the more you begin to say, I don't want this. I don't want this. If Jesus can say it about the cross, you can say it about traffic. I don't want it. It's not what I want today. That's what makes prayer real. Here are my desires. And we, we come to God in prayer saying, God, make my desires your desires. Make them one. That is ultimately what we want. That his desires will become our desires and we would be in submission and obedience and trust to him. But part of that process is offering up the desires that may not be in line with his will. Offering up those feelings that you have. I don't want the cancer. That's okay to say. I don't want the broken heart. God, I don't want it. It's not what I want. I don't want the family dysfunction. I don't want the turmoil. I don't, I don't want this. It's okay to say. It's okay to say, may it be your will that this not be the path forward. And it's okay to say to God, come rescue me. Take me home before I have to endure this. That's okay. God, I want your will, but in this moment, my desires, this is not what I want. May it be your will that I do not have to face it, but I will trust you no matter what. And notice what's going on, verse 37. He came and found them sleeping. We will never deny you. And now they're asleep. Sound asleep, the text says. And so who does he go to? Simon? I imagine the sarcasm. Is it you, Simon? Hey, hey, bud, look at me. Mr. I will die for you? Sleeping, really? Simon, Peter, you could not watch one hour. It actually just means one moment. You couldn't stay awake for this moment. We're not, even, we're not even there yet, Peter. There's no swords. There's no clubs. There's no cross. We're not, even, we're not even close yet, and you're asleep. We haven't, been, we haven't been on the path for but a few minutes, and you're already dead asleep. Could you not watch one hour? And then he gives them another chance. This is grace, right? Okay, let's try this again. Let's practice one more time. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He says, y'all gonna have to get your hearts right. This is just the beginning. You're about to be tested. And he says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I don't think he's talking about the Holy Spirit there. I think he's just talking about their desire and their emotions. Yeah, you can say, you can say you'll never deny me, but now we're out here alone and you're denying me in sleep. You're asleep. Never betray me. What does this look like? And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Now, again, he goes back to the Father. I don't want this. Let this cup pass from me. 
Not my will, but your will. Verse 40, and again he came and found them sleeping. Again, sleeping. Now, I I believe that they probably heard Jesus praying in the distance. And that wasn't enough to keep them awake. What is going on with him? Screaming, crying out. This would be like being with a friend in the waiting room. And their child is on a ventilator and has minutes to live. And you're snoring over in the corner. How rude and insulting. What would that say? That's what's going on with Jesus here. Notice the text says their eyes were very, very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. We don't know what to say, Jesus. We're we're tired. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Is this the time you choose to fall asleep? And he, I mean, he goes to Peter and think about the three times here. Peter will remember those moments. Do you know him? I never knew him. Do you know him? I never knew him. Do you know him? You were with him. I never knew him. And yet Jesus, three times, is before the Father in Peter's place. Interesting. And here we have a picture of our high priest who can sympathize with us in every way. At this moment, Jesus is alone before the Father. No one's there. He's totally betrayed. Judas will betray him. Here's disciples are betraying him. And as we, we look in this moment, we see he's alone. His friends are sleeping. He's in agony. He is in pain. He is in sorrow. He is in prayer. You have to keep this moment in your mind as you pray. Because the tendency this week is for you to say, I'm alone in this. No one has ever felt this way. No one's ever been in this moment, a moment like this. No no one's ever felt this sort of fear and anxiety and worry. No one's ever felt this kind of stress. No one's ever been hurt. No one's ever been betrayed the way I am in this moment. And after today, you can no longer say that because you have seen the Savior betrayed. And here you see the Savior in the deepest agony that has ever been experienced emotionally to the point that it almost kills him physically. No one has felt this kind of pain. And so when you say, no one's there for me, no, the Savior's already been there for you. And he knows it and he feels it. Jesus has felt those emotions that you feel that take your breath away. You're not the only one. As you wait for the test results, as you try to sort out the the dysfunction, as you experience loss, as you are hurt, what you need to do is practice in your prayer life saying to Jesus, what? You too? You've been there. You know this feeling, Jesus. You can sympathize as my high priest this pain and this sorrow and this agony. But notice, the verse continues, 
Verse 41, it is enough, the hour has come. And Mark is so good with these transitions. It's just abrupt, it's sharp. Jesus is in pain and he's in agony. The disciples are betraying him. They're trying to work all this out. And then all of a sudden, it is enough. The hour has come, Jesus says. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Enough, it, it's finished. Now, what I believe happens there in the it is not enough, the hour has come, is Jesus has gone through the garden, he has prayed to the Father, and now he is fully and finally forsaken by anyone and everyone, including the Father. The Father didn't answer his prayer. Think about that. The Father said, the cup can't pass. Go. That's the answer Jesus got in the garden was silence. And he says, okay, the moment's here. I'm forsaken. I've got to go alone. The Father will not protect me from this. He will be betrayed into the hands of sinners. He says, rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Judas is on the scene. The will of God is that the cup not pass. Now, real quickly, this is the work of prayer. It's not to get what you want from God. It is to conform your will to what God wants. That's what prayer is. We make our request known to God, but ultimately it is to conform our will to God. It's not some sort of mystical encounter that makes us feel better. It is I'm going before God to express my desire and I will walk away believing his will is what is best, trusting him that he's gonna give me what I need. But here in this moment, as Jesus gets up with his disciples, here is where we part ways with Jesus. Because up until this moment, we felt sorrow and we felt emotional pain and we felt our desires counter maybe what the will of God might be. And we, we, we can express those things. But here we part ways. Jesus goes away and we go another way. And that is why betrayal is so emphasized in these chapters. Because we are to feel it. We are to, we are to feel Jesus is being betrayed. And then we are to sense, although we probably wouldn't say it, that it's not just Judas and it's not just the disciples. There's someone else. We probably wouldn't call it betrayal. But there is someone else there that is not answering Jesus' prayer. And it's the Father. The father loves the son. He delights in the son. He will eventually raise the son from the dead. But here the father says, there's no other way. You must bear the cup. And so Jesus is totally alone. And so our paths diverge here. And there's an infinite chasm in between them. And what we are about to see in the weeks to come is in Jesus' very act of obedience he is obeying the Father's will, and, and in obeying the Father's will, he is treated as one who disobeys the Father. The Son who obeys the Father will be treated as a sinner who has disobeyed the Father. And the Father has turned him over to that. Jesus is treated as the sleeper. And those of us who believe in him are treated as sons. That's what the gospel is. At the cross, we believe. We believe in the cross and we trust in Jesus. We are justified by faith. It means we are treated as those who have never sinned 
and have always obeyed. And it's because in these moments, Jesus goes to be treated as one who always sinned and never obeyed. Do, do you get that? Our past, we, we can't, we're not friends with Jesus as he walks to the cross because he goes alone. He can't turn around and look at us and say, oh, you too, you're following? No. He's the only one from betrayal to burial. And, and, and this this not where we, we live. This is our only hope, is that he is the sinner whose prayer was unanswered. And as his prayer is unanswered, all of our prayers are being answered. When there's silence in the garden, God is answering every one of your prayers. Because your sins, when you believe in him, can be forgiven and you can have the righteousness of God and you can have the kingdom of God. All your prayers are being answered as he, does, as he refuses to answer Jesus' prayer in that moment. He is tortured in infinite punishment and we are lavished in infinite love. He is betrayed to wrath. We are befriended by mercy. We never taste the cup that he will drink down, but we get all the benefits from it. And this is where we must live. That Jesus goes and he works and he prays for us while we so often are sleeping on him. And this is where, where our, our paths diverge. And the good news for all of us here today is your lack of prayer and submission, lack of submission is no shock to him. It's no shock to him. He knows what is before him here. And if you want to know how much Jesus loves you today, your sin betrayed him to the cross, and yet he still prays for you today. He is still before the Father on your behalf today. As you think about all the ways you are weak and all the ways in which you are sleeping on him, in these moments, Jesus is before the Father praying for you. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, John writes, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, John was there. Don't fall asleep like I did. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. If you fall asleep, Jesus is still praying for you. And you know what he's saying? Father, look at my righteousness. Father, look at my death on the cross. Jesus isn't before the Father saying, oh, he didn't mean that. No, give him another chance. No, 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 no. no what, he, what he's doing is saying, yeah, he's a sinner. He's a sleeper. Look at my sinless sacrifice. My blood, my righteousness covers him. This is where gospel friendship with Jesus is formed. Because of our sin and his righteousness, Jesus is the only one in this room today who cannot say you too, because he is the only one who is righteous and faced the cross for you. Before the Father today, before the Father in prayer today, he looks at us who are sleeping, weak betrayers, and he says, by my righteousness though, yes, you too. Yes, them too. They get the kingdom.